Hi, I'm Patrick McEnroe, and this is Holding Court. On today's episode, I speak with Pam Shriver directly from Los Angeles after her Mother's Day celebration. A little parenting talk, but a lot more tennis talk, especially about the men's game, who she likes going into the French Open, what's going on with American men's tennis. Uh, and we look ahead a little bit to the women's field as well at the French Open. Then later in the show, I bring in my buddy Brad Gilbert, also from ESPN. BG, he's the best. I tell him we're going to talk seven, eight minutes. Of course, we end up going on a lot longer than that. BG breaks down club tennis. Of course, I've been given a lot of lessons here at our tennis academy. Brad Gilbert absolutely loves it. He even goes out and watches club tennis in his off time. We also talk, of course, what's going on in the pro game. He gives his opinions on that. And I hope you enjoy today's episode of Holding Court. Thanks to Raya Eyewear for sponsoring this episode of Holding Court. I've been wearing Raya since last year. During the pandemic, I started teaching more lessons than ever before, especially outside. Raya are by far the best sunglasses for tennis I've ever used. Check them out at RayaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A Eyewear.com and use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. They are total game changers. All right, everybody. Time for the Tuesday version of Holding Court. You know what that means. Tennis, tennis, and more tennis. And back by popular demand, you know, I'm able to track my downloads of each of the episodes that I've done over the last now over a year. And one of the most popular ones was with this woman. And of course, she's a longtime cohort of mine at ESPN, one of the all-time great players in women's tennis, especially on the doubles court. The one and only Pam Shriver from the West Coast joins me. Pam, first of all, how was your Mother's Day? I know like me and my wife, Melissa, you've got your hands full, maybe even a little bit more than we do. Well, as a, as, a, as a single mom of three kids, including twins, yeah, it's a handful. But uh, I got I got some extra special treatment yesterday on Mother's Day, and I was grateful to be able to have a wonderful conversation with my mom in Baltimore. Mm. So it was a great day. Well, I saw you were also on your on your social media. I saw you were you were in the kitchen. You were cooking a little bit. What were those pancakes or cookies or what was they, it? Those were Snickerdoodle mm. cookies. That uh, my kids make me, uh, and I managed to only have one for, for for yesterday. That's a good effort. That's a very good effort. So, uh, you know, good news on the Wimbledon front. You and I have been a part of a couple of calls recently with our cohorts at ESPN, and it looks like this is not official and it's not set in stone that we, the announcers at ESPN, will likely be making the trip over to Wimbledon. I know, Pam, I and mean, we've had so many great years there commentating. Of course, you. Uh, how many times did you win Wimbledon doubles? Five. Five times. So you're, you're, a, um, you're a member there, right? <laughs> no, no, no. That's a sore subject. They, uh, they've let a few of the men double oh, specialists. Okay, so I didn't even know members. that. So to me, it's like a no-brainer. Of course you should be a member. So the, I know no. the, the Woodies are members, right? Woodbridge and Woodford. Correct. And maybe if I behave myself for the next 20 years, <laughs> eventually I'll get one. I was like thinking I could hit you up for some tickets. You know, my brother's got his allotment. You know, Chris Everett's got hers. You got Martina, of course. She's your longtime uh, doubles partner. She's a, you, by, by the way, you, you become a member automatically, just for those fans that don't know, at the All England Club. If you win the singles title, you automatically become a member. So they say, what's the easiest way to become a member of Wimbledon? Win, win the well, singles title. That's right, except if you play in the era of Martina Navratilova and Steffi Groff, they, they only won 16 between them, so right. that kind of blocked me out, sort mm-hmm. of like the way a lot of the men players have felt recently with the big three. 
Yeah, no kidding. Well, you should be a member, and I, that to me is just a travesty. So I'll, you know, not that they're going to listen to me, but come on, Pam Shriver, five Wimbledon doubles titles. Give me, give if someone would say, give me a, you know what, you cannot be serious, or give me a break. All right, let's talk about men's tennis. Um, I know you cover the men and the women, but just your overall impression so far of the men's clay court season. Obviously, Rafa, in my opinion, still a solid favorite going into the French, but he has dropped a couple of matches in this clay court season so far. Zverev had an unbelievable week beating Rafa Nadal and then winning the title at a tight match over Berrettini. What are your impressions so far of watching what's gone on uh, on the clay on the men's side? Well, it's been pretty fascinating because um, Rafa hasn't had his usual A game on the clay. I, I think all of us, just like what you said, we still – have great faith that he'll win three out of five format at Roland Garros going for, it's hard to believe, 14. I love the way Sitsipas played both in Monte Carlo and in Barcelona. Um, I thought Berrettini's looking really good on the clay. Karatsev, who we enjoyed mm. seeing having breakout Australian Open, he's proven to be a really good clay court player. So I think the men's game, you mentioned Zverev winning yesterday, team coming back after a break. I feel like it's really well balanced. Um, to perhaps make a bit of a push um, towards the big three. I mean, Federer is a big question mark. We'll see how I, th I think he's going to play okay on the grass. Um, Medvedev, seeing him number two in the rankings, he doesn't seem to like clay, but that's still sort of you look at number two and you're, you're like, okay, wow, it's Medvedev. So mm -hmm. a lot of interesting stuff happening on the men's side. Uh, what, what did you make? I know team coming back, he's had a rough year so far. I think the fallout, not the fallout, but the aftermath of the U.S. Open win, a lot of pressure taken off of him in his own mind. I, he reminds me, Pam, a little bit of Jim Currier in his prime, meaning you know, Currier was obviously a better player up until this point with four majors, two Australians, two French Opens. But you know, Currier sort of hit the wall physically in his mid to late 20s and never really found the balance of not killing himself on the practice court but still being able to play at a high level to stay at the top. And I feel like that's what team is going through a little bit because he worked so hard for so long. Obviously, the U.S. Open, we all know about that. No Federer, no Nadal. Djokovic gets defaulted. But I, I feel like he hasn't quite adjusted to the aftermath of that. And the, my question is, will he? Because he's been unimpressive thus far this year. Even though at the start of the year, I would have said, odds on the favorite other than Nadal to win the French. What do you think? Well, I think a couple of things. Um, certainly, the pressure changes when you become a major winner. But I also think about his last few years and how much he's played. Who's played more tournaments on the ATP Tour than team? And he also played so much even during lockdown, the pandemic. He seemed to grab every possible playing opportunity, no matter where it was. So I think it could be a little bit of physical and emotional uh, minor burnout. I won't mm -hmm. say it's major yet. I think he's really smart to take the pause. I thought he looked okay given, you know, he, he's not used to playing with rust. I thought he looked okay last week. Um, he's another one that is trying to just peak for the right time, which he, he wants to peak at Roland Garros. So still question marks, um, but, I, but I agree. We, there are question marks, and he's not as sure a thing as what we thought maybe six, eight months ago. All right, first time in ATP history, that's the ATP rankings, which go back to the 70s, uh, no American man in ranked for the first time ever in the top 30 
in the rankings. Now, I'm not the, I'm not the punching boy anymore because I don't run the USDA program player development as I did for a number of years. So I heard from plenty, Pam, when things like this happen, that's when I'd get all the message, you know, sort of a milestone reached. And back then it was, you know, no American man getting to the quarters, semis of a major. And now it just, you know, it's, with, despite the fact that we, we in the United States have so many great female players at the top, also coming up of all different backgrounds, shapes, sizes, ages, on the men's side, where it seems like we're going in the wrong direction, at least from the headlines. What would you say to that? Well, I think it's complicated. I'm not sure which one I would have uh, said, no way, that's not going to happen. If you told me that Andy Roddick would have won the uh, U.S. Open in 2003 and there mm. wouldn't be another U.S. male winner or finalist at a major since 2003, I would have said not a chance. The other thing I would have said not a chance is that for the first time ever, there'd be no U.S man in the top 30 in the world. It's, it's not going to last long. There, there's going to be some breakthroughs. I hope that the guys get a little angry and get a little, uh, you know, that this gets some media play and people and the players um, as a group, the U.S. players, they get ticked off. They start working harder. I, I don't know. I, I think court is the real deal. I think we mm-hmm. have some young players that are going to be in the not only top 30, but a lot higher, but it's just not good enough. And I think it's complicated. I think it's cultural. I think it's the fact that there's so many different sports in the U.S. that great athletes can choose from, unlike the women's side, where tennis really is the prominent sport for women athletes or their parents to steer the the women towards. It's different on the men's side. And um, I don't know. I feel like we're a little soft right now as a country. Um, in some areas, I think, uh, whether it's I see it in my own teenagers, uh, the work ethic, I don't think it's what it was um, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, people are kids are, you know, they're, they're easily entertained and they have a lot more, you know, things coming their way. So it's, I think it's hard to focus. I actually sat my daughters down, believe it or not, this weekend and said, you know, get really good at something. You know, you know, forget the TikToks all day long and the and the music and this and you know what, what do they call them? Uh, the, the people that promote stuff on Instagram, uh, influencers. influencers. I said, whatever you do, can you stop with the influence? You know, do something. You know, be good at something. I mean, it could be tennis, could be ballet, could be playing the piano. Anyway, that was my father's rant on Mother's Day. I won't let. <laughs> I, I I promise I'd keep you for a short amount, Pam. This has been awesome. But I do have to ask you about what, the, the women's game, of course, right now. I mean, Barty's been on fire obviously lost in in the final in Madrid to Sabalenka we saw Sabalenka play a great match against Serena in a losing effort I took a couple questions is Sabalenka ready to take the next step and then who would be your favorite right now for the French Open well Sabalenka's really had problems with majors Uh, although at the Australian Open uh, she played really well and that draw was just jam-packed on her half of the draw and you know I think she's ready to have a good breakthrough at a major Uh, the clay court she won on in Madrid is a lot faster than say in Rome or Paris I wouldn't have her as my favorite I I look at Barty Halep uh, it's probably the two favorites um, going into this Rolling Arrows but I, I just like the men's game it's I think both sides are at such an interesting time, and I can't wait for the French Open and then squeezed by a week, followed up shortly by Wimbledon. I think there's going to be a lot of unknowns to make the transition from clay to grass, a surface nobody's played on in two years. So there's going to be a lot of surprises. I'm hoping that that, that the main players stay healthy. I'd like Andrescu to have mm-hmm. a, a healthy run and, and – 
for a period of time because she's another one that we've missed. Will Serena be able? I think Clay Court is a possible chance for Serena for Achilles is healthy. I think the slower court helps her like it helps Sharapova win a couple of extra French Opens. So who knows? I mean, I can't wait. Well, I can't wait to see you in person, Pam, which hopefully we'll do in London. And you said on one of our ESPN calls, you said, you know, you feel like you need to practice sometime commentating because it's like going to be so long between our commentating gigs. But let me tell you, you do not need to practice. If you want to practice, okay, you and I could do another one of these and we could even do it on video if you want. That could be our practice. I mean, you're, this is a, you're like having missed a beat. That's a game set match. I'll take that every time. <laughs> the one and only Pam Shriver. Thank you for joining me for a few minutes here on Holding Court. Ma, one of the another tennis mom of the year. This episode is being brought to you by Raya Eyewear. Over the last few years, a growing concern of mine has been the long-term effects of overexposure to UV rays from my extended time on court in the sun. You know, following that little yellow ball all over the globe. Well, I was also just tired of squinting on sunny days, but my fear was always that wearing sunglasses to protect my eyes would affect the way I hit the ball. Well, last year, especially during the pandemic last summer, I came across Raya, and I'm so, so glad that I did. Raya is changing the way tennis players see the game and protect their most important performance asset, their vision. All of their eyewear is handcrafted in Italy and built specifically to enhance ball contrast and provide protection from those harmful UV rays. There's no question that they help me see the ball better, they relax my eyes in the sun, and they've become an essential part of my tennis experience. Check them out at RiaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. Use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. I promise you will love these sunglasses. Looking forward to this man, of course, Brad Gilbert, to, uh, you know, BG, first of all, thanks for joining me as we recap the clay court season, look ahead to... Uh, the French Open and so on, but you know I'm able to try. By the way, you have your own podcast, which is awesome too. With you do it with your son, correct? Winning uglier after your book, which of course maybe the best-selling tennis book of all time. Winning uglier. What do you guys talk about on your podcast? First of all, we try to help you know club players, junior players with their game. It's a little more about coaching, a little bit of fun, mm-hmm. but you know it's just mostly about you know talking tennis, but, but not like strictly the professional game or, you know, we have a lot of fun. Unfortunately, Zach is working really hard right now, a director of tennis um, at a club. So we're a little bit on hiatus. That's okay. I need my co-partner back. I need your co-partner. Zach, of course, it's Zach's, uh, Zach Gilbert, Brad's son, who worked with us. has worked with us many years at ESPN, was a solid player himself, and uh, just awesome working for us at ESPN. Um, so, BG, uh you know, I, I'm able to track my episodes, okay, and, and which ones are the most popular. And right at the top of the list is the one and only Brad Gilbert, the podcast we did about your, uh, you know, background in tennis and how you got started. So you're right at the top of the list. So this is backed by popular demand, the one and only Brad Gilbert, of course. Uh, I, as you know, you and I stay in touch all the time. Uh, I'm on the court a lot in the last year since COVID hit teaching. By the way, kids of all ages, adults of all ages and levels, and I hear more than, more often than not from people that are great recreational players that love to play in their ladies' league or, you know, just guys that play at their club. Winning Ugly was a book that, uh, you know, has helped them a ton. So give me, just give me two or three tidbits that I can tell to my people that I play with. Two key things, two or three key things from your book that you think are important for club players especially. 
Well, I can tell you now, you know, I go periodically. Let's say I'll go over to Malibu Racquet Club, and I'll just study club players to mm-hmm. kind of see w- what they're doing and what they're not doing. And I think it's more about learning how to maximize your game and mm-hmm. not just obsessing about technique or sometimes taking some lessons that don't help you compete. So right. I think the biggest thing is trying to help club players understand how to use their game more effectively. And I, I, I just happened to be watching a couple of weeks ago. So I, I, I rocked up for a couple hours and I watched him. One thing that, you know, I was kind of struck by is how many club players, if the ball comes to the forehand, or the ball comes to the backhand, they play it. If you happen to have a decent little forehand, you, you don't see a lot of club players trying to run around mm-hmm. and, and use their forehand more. Or, you, you know, good footwork on balls down the middle. Right, right. Um, so I, I think it's it's much more about helping the club player, mm-hmm. you know, understand his game. And actually, you know, uh, one of the biggest things about winning ugly was with Steve Jameson, the guy that I wrote the book with, we happened to be one day watching the two guys that he was competing against. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting there watching. I'm watching. He's watching, but he's actually watching, but not learning. And I told him, like, within three points, you know, this guy can't hit a backhand down the line. This right. guy can never on the run go cross. And he's looking at me, and he goes, I, I can't believe you're thinking about these guys' strengths and weaknesses and their three, five players. It's like, yeah, on every level, mm-hmm. you can think about your opponent's strengths and weaknesses and then how to maximize your strengths and weaknesses to your opponents. And so I think a lot of club players just don't think about that scenario. And maybe a lot of the coaches right. you know, that work with them don't think about that as well. Do you think um, that Andre Agassi, when you started, you know, the first time you started working with him, it uh, was called the Lipton and Key Biscay in those days. When you first got on the court with him, as great of a player as he already was, do you think he understood that about the opponents? I mean, you, you kind of helped him become, I think, such a great tactician out there in addition to being a great ball striker. But what was his mindset when you brought that BG kind of outlook to his game? You know, something that sometimes if you're not really aware of it and and you never really focused on and had somebody focus on it for you, like, you know, on tactics on the other side. No, I, I actually feel like that was probably the most beneficial part that I brought to Andre and that, you don't have to be perfect every time mm. and playing at the standard. You know, a lot of times you play to your opponent's level, but I think it really helps you as a player dramatically. Knowing players' strengths and weaknesses and maybe what my strength will will benefit me more playing this opponent. Right. But he did have this one rare ability when we would talk. It, you know, still after all this time, it's like because I didn't have this capability – and I always kind of, I don't know about you, ooh, you know, your tennis go up when somebody's got a straight, a really good straight. You know, maybe you try to avoid right, it or right. try to figure out how to find the weakness, you know. And Andre's kind of like, hmm, what is the great straight? Let's go through it. Let's break it down first and then break everything else. It's so great in theory, too, but you have to have such, you know, capability to right. do that. And I was like, that's a hard one for my brain 
to think about, but it, it actually did open up my eyes a lot in strategy and understanding that if you can take somebody hard and fast and straight, you can open up even more space to somebody's weakness. So interesting to hear you talk about the club player too, because I was just thinking to the lessons that I give, and I give lessons to a lot of players. And of course, you know, when you're, you're teaching, Brad, you're controlling the ball, you could hit it you know, in the, they give them the same shot every time. So they're feeling really good. And then I have some players, you know, they said, okay, I want to get better in competing. I want to play in my club tournament. I want to play this summer. So then I say, okay, well, now we're going to play some points, right? So, I mean, I literally give them the, the same kind of ball. I mean, it's not like I'm playing like for real. I, I give them, and all of a sudden they start missing. And, they, and inevitably they say, how come I can't do the same thing in the rally that I can in the point? And your answer would be? Life belt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in drills or, or, or setting things up, a lot of times, you know, the coach maybe hits you some volleys, you're standing three, four feet from the net, and you're just punching down. Now, all of a sudden, we don't know the, where the ball is going, and there's the variables of that. And so that's why I feel like much more beneficial to a lot of players work on the footwork, mm-hmm. work on making balls, learning how to make balls. Um, but sometimes being spoon fed or even right. just. Grooving on the ball machine, you know, isn't the same variable as I call. You see ju- elite juniors do this all the time, working on a six-ball drill. But mm-hmm. you know where every ball is going. Right, right, predictability. And, and yeah. So I, I feel like that, that's why I call it the live ball. And then there's also, for club players, Patrick, there's a, since I've been a little kid, since you've been a little kid, there's a reason why they got that little net score on there and we mm-hmm. keep score because mm-hmm. now all of a sudden – Got a little nerve factor in there. <laughs> right, right. So true. So, all right. So we, we just blew by. I told you I'd take you five to seven minutes. We've already done eight minutes. We haven't even talked about the pros. But this is what happens when you get on a, a, a call or a chat with BG about tennis. Fascinating at every level. So let me ask you just quickly, Brad, about what you've seen so far in the clay court season. I actually want to start with the women uh, because normally you and I talk about the men. But I want to hear from you about what you've seen so far. Obviously, Barty's been on fire. Sabah. Alenka with a big win over her in Madrid in the final. We saw a great match from Sabalenka losing to Serena. Where do you look at who's you know looking good right now for the French? Where do you put the odds on your favorites on the women's side? Yeah, sometimes I think last year I said fifteen or twenty could easily win it. Yeah, and and I'm not sure I would have had last year's winner even on it. You know, based upon you know, where she had ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, Igor Swiatek, the young Polish team. Yeah, Swiatek, and she blew away the field. Right. I'm going to say this year we're probably a little bit thinner, maybe mm-hmm. at 10. Okay. Barty's played very strong. Obviously, we need to see the draw. Osaka at two in the world. It, it definitely isn't where she wants to be yet on the clay. I think at some point she'll get better. And how crazy is this? I'm not sure I've ever seen this stat before ever in tennis. This is one, you know, Greg Sharko, you know, he'd be putting, okay, we got to, you know, comb the record. Zabalenka now is ranked four in the world. Right. And never been passed around the 16 of a slam. That's crazy. So can we put her in the mix? Because I I think that she's actually probably better when, you know, obviously you have quicker conditions. She has a huge game. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think expect the unexpected – in the women's, and I also think the, the, the weather plays a huge factor. Remember last right. year, it was much cooler at the uh, French. Yes. Maybe right. this year, we now had some warmer weather in Madrid and Rome. Maybe we get warmer weather in Paris. It'll be quicker conditions. 
that would help somebody like Zabalenka. I think the quicker conditions help Barty as well. But I do, I'll do. i say this, until we see the draw, I, I, I could easily see 10 women winning the tournament. All right, best chance for American woman, women, woman, excuse me, to win Roland Garros. Who's got the best chance on the women's side? Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I was really, you know, surprised last year that Kennan, you know, played as well as she did. Um, obviously, just replacing her dad and not playing anywhere near the level that what she's played so far. Um, God, I, I, you know, honestly, you know, hasn't been a great um, clay court season yet for any of the American women. But mm. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a Jen Brady. Mm. I thought you might you know, say she's her. Yeah. played well now, you know, in Australia. She's played well at the Open. She has yep. a big, you know, forehand with a lot of spin. So I think she's somebody that could make a deep run. But we do, the greatness of our women, we have about, <laughs> wow. I don't know, 17, yeah. 18 in the top 100. So all of a sudden, like Daniel Collins last year, a right. run. You, I, so we could have numerous different ones that you, you were like, really? I didn't see that coming. That's the greatness of, of our women. So uh, I think at least one will make, if not two, will make the last day. Interesting. All right, so from, from the positive on the women's side to the negative on the men's side, i got to ask you about this, BG, because the first time in the history of the ATP rankings, not one American male in the top 30 in the rankings. What say you? Depressing. It was just not too long ago yeah. that, that there was no American man, I believe. It was sometime last year in the top 20. Right. But it just leads me to think more than ever, Patrick. I, I, I enjoy watching clay court tennis now more than ever. I didn't mm-hmm. like watching clay court tennis that much when I played because it wasn't my best surface and I didn't grow up on it. It just, I, I'm convinced, I've been saying this, you've been hearing me say this for 15 years. If we're ever going to get back in the top of the game, I'd say a minimum of 60 to 70% of the junior nationals in the boys need to be on clay. And then another big onus needs to be on indoor tennis because that seems to be the recipe mm. in Europe for men, you know, is learning to play on clay, you know, strengthens your legs, teaches you discipline, right. and then maybe playing on quicker indoors, which then you develop your serve and, and then that contrasting style. So I, I definitely think... That's the equation. And you know what happens if you only play one or two tournaments a year as a junior on clay? You rarely ever practice on clay. So if all of a sudden now there was a lot more big tournaments, i.e. the Kalamazoo's, were on clay, a lot more kids would start to practice on clay, and I think that would help their games dramatically. Because, you know, if you – and, you know, another thing that people don't realize, the courts on the ATP Tour – are in, on hard courts and a lot of these indoor, they're incredibly slow. They're, they've been resurfaced every year. Most of us that grow up or, or you play at clubs or you play at parks, the courts aren't resurfaced every year. Mm-hmm. They're resurfaced, you know, how often you resurface them in your club? Well, and, well, and they're so much right. quicker. Well, I was going to say to you, here so at the... Here, here that ends itself bad habits. Right. Here at the John McEnroe Tennis Academy, where I am right now, just got through with a few meetings. I'll be out on the courts uh, in a couple hours working with the kids group from four to six. But you'll be happy to know, Brad, that we have 
hard courts. Actually, we have five of our indoor courts that are permanent indoor. We, then the other 15 of our courts are bubbled, of which five are hard, and they get resurfaced every year because the U.S. Open uses them for practice. So we are able to get those. Those become our outdoor hard courts. And then we have 10 clay, which is a green clay, so it's not the real European red clay. But we, we, we got it covered here at the McEnroe Academy. Well, we that's got, good. Yeah. Now, I hear a lot of people say that the green clay is fake clay. And I say, listen, green clay is a lot better than no clay. And it still mm-hmm. teaches you discipline and, and how to build points. Um, we, we need public facilities on clay. We, we have nothing in California, no public facilities. And, and I, uh, so I'm a big proponent more than ever. Clay teaches you things that that are invaluable, especially competing at tournaments and, and would force you to practice. So that's what we need to do on the men's side. All right. Um, before I let you go, I got to ask you about the current state of the men's game and wh- where you think things are falling now. Nadal, obviously, well, I'm not going to say obviously for me, he's still the favorite at the French until someone actually beats him there. So I'd still put him there. What have you made so far of this clay court season? Obviously, Zverev with a big win in Madrid, the altitude helped him there for sure. Team coming back, Joker, where's he at? Where do you where where do you place things at the moment in your head? Well, after this week, one thing that's kind of interesting is Nadal cannot be two. He loses points from Madrid from 2019, so he'll be three. So potentially he could fall in the Djokovic half. Medvedev plays his weakest tennis on the clay, right. so you know maybe that's going to open things up for a City Pass or Zverev. Um, Rafa, you know, found better form in Barcelona. I mean, he's got a very tricky match tomorrow against Sinner, and he's in Zverev quarter. I'm, Patrick, I'm actually blown away on how Zverev has recovered from the Open last year. Mm -hmm. Because that was kind of a match that reminded me for a second that of a young guy that didn't recover from a loss in the finals of a slam was Coria. Right. Never recovered. Right. right. And so you, you almost kind of felt like maybe that could be that. And he somehow put that behind him. And, and even Pass blew a second round, two sets to one, five, one. And both of them have just put that behind him. So I, I'll, I'll agree with you that Rafa's the favorite mm-hmm. and, and Joker hasn't played a lot. You know, lost early, you know, at Monte Carlo and lost uh, at his home tournament. Right. Zvera is somebody now that, you, you know, beaten Rafa three times in a row. It's got to think that, you know, I beat him three times in a row in straights. I got a shot now. So I, Rafa, without seeing the draw, is clearly the favorite, but I definitely would not be surprised if you told me in whatever it is, five weeks from now or something like that, mm-hmm. that, you know, we listen. If he doesn't win this week, you know, it only gives the players best of five is different. But, you know, you, you got to think, can it be me next? Yeah, so maybe he's not as heavy of a favorite as he's been in the past. How about team? Where do you think his head at, speaking of the U.S. Open final? Because he's gone in the opposite direction, though he looked decent in his first tournament back on the clay in Madrid. Well, he probably, you know, took this little break that, you know, that mm-hmm. normally because he would have played Monte Carlo, he didn't play Miami, he, he cleared his head, and he looked pretty good. So um, something to completely build on, you know, in your first tournament back. So I do think with with Rafa being seeded three, w- w- Medvedev, the second seed, I think it's going to be crucial, you know, to, you know, let's say you're a City Pass or you're, um, you're a Zverev. Right. You, you want to be in that quarter and, and where would team fall? I, so 
I do think that the draw will be crucial, and it'll be really interesting to see how Djokovic, you know, all of a sudden, where is his level at this week? And I think he's going to play another 250 in his home country uh, next week. So I, I will say normally Rafa is a, a ridiculous fate. You know, it could be one to five. But right. I, I think that the field has a much better chance. I'm not ready to say it's usually Rafa or the field. You take Rafa. Mm-hmm. I'm not ready to say that yet for this French Open. Interesting. By the way, Raya what said... What about you? Yeah, I'm going to say Nadal's still the favorite. I'm going to put... I think I'm going to put team maybe Sitsipas in as the second favorite at the moment. I really like the way Sitsipas is moving and looking on the clay. Team, to me, if he's on, you know, has more firepower and, and, and you know, obviously he's got the confidence of having played well there. So I would... You know, I still need to see another week or two, I think, see what happens in Rome this week, which is on right now. Uh, Sinner is interesting, as you said, getting set to He's coming like he's coming like a freight train. The one that I, I, I like the most that you just said, I think that his game is going to translate to any surface, and I think he's on you know he's on a nice path really soon to to be potentially the next number one and win slams. Mm-hmm. I think it's fifty path. Wow. Okay. Well, that's I uh, wouldn't be surprised to see that happen in the next couple of years. So that's BG, everyone. By the way, the Raya sunglasses, BG. I see you. They're a sponsor of yours. You know, I had a sponsor for my podcast back at the at the end of last year. I don't know if you remember who it was. It was My Pillow. Okay, was my sponsor. That didn't last too long for a variety of reasons, which I'm sure you can imagine. That, but I got the Raya sunglasses, which I know I see you on their Instagram. They're, they're now my first sponsor of the podcast. Those glasses are unbelievable, by the way. I've been wearing them even indoors playing tennis. I know you. Yeah, you, I, need, yeah. I need all the help I can get. And you know who <laughs> I'm going to see today, Patrick? Oh. Listen, make sure everybody that's listening, wear a hat, wear mm-hmm. your sunscreen. I got to go again, I, you know, consultation right. with the, the skin doctor. I got a couple of mu- uh, spots, that get mm. one on my nose, one on my forehead, tricky spots to be removed. Uh-huh. So the sun is always my toughest opponent, but you need to always defend. Defend and wear sunscreen <laughs> right. and a hat because I didn't do it too well when I was a kid. I do it well now, yeah. but, you know, scars of the past. It, you know, tough opponent, but I'm not giving up. No one, no one was better defending the tennis court than BG. Unbelievably quick around the court and worked me over a few times. We'll do. Look, we we did twenty minutes, BG. I told you five to seven. That's how it goes with you. We could go on on any topic. So you want to talk college tennis? You want to talk recreational tennis? You you tell me, and then I'll even come on winning uglier when Zach is ready to get get off the mat, and we'll do oh, yeah, it there I'm too. Sorry, I had the college tennis. You know, yep. I like the college tennis. The tree went down. Yep. Um, yeah. I, I really like it. I like it. Listen, I'm that guy. I was actually fascinated. I'm making notes when I did it a couple of weeks ago when I just studied club players just to see the trends, mm-hmm. you know, what's happening in juniors. I kind of like just, you know, watching. And and here's another one that we, uh, not enough people take advantage of. My best friend, the wall. <laughs> well, I do. Yeah, know, I do. I take advantage how, of that. Listen, how therapeutic is it just hitting on the wall? A big, best thing ever. Best thing ever. Clear the head, hit that ball. I, I always tell people that drill you do, you just keep the ball in play. You don't move your feet to see if you can control people. Look at me like I'm crazy. I said, is it, that's Brad Gilbert. That's what Brad does. And that shows you how to control the ball. All these kids now, they drop their wrist on the volley. They don't know how to control it. They got the power with all these rackets. Got to go old school, BG style. If you can make 
10, 15 in a row as a junior. As a club player, you start making two in a row, three in a row, four in a row without actually moving your feet. That means mm -hmm. you're hitting it to the target. It's coming back to you. You're preparing a little. It's one of the great skills that will help you actually in match play, especially if you're playing doubles, three, five, four, oh. You can make, you know, mm -hmm. a few in a row to the wall and it comes back to you, then you're getting better. Good, th good things are going to happen. Well, hopefully good things are happening for us, BG, that we'll be at Wimbledon together. We hope that sounds like that's going to happen. I'll look forward to it. We'll hit some balls. Maybe we'll get on the wall. We'll do it all. Appreciate you coming on Holden Court, my friend. Yeah, have a great afternoon and enjoy the afternoon lessons. You got it. Take care. Brad Gilbert, everybody. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.